welcome to the Unqualified Sports Show for September 19th, 2020. I am your host, Nate Snetko, and with me as always is my partner in crime, Forrest James. Hello. So we begin today with the Boston Celtics who fall into an 0-2 hole against the Miami Heat in the Eastern Conference Finals of the NBA. They lose by a final score of 106-101 in a, um, a very frustrating game. Uh, this was the as this is that typical really awful kind of loss that they have every now and then where they're up big early and then kind of fall asleep in the third quarter and then can't dig themselves out of the hole in the fourth. Mm. Um, I they were up 13 points at halftime. They basically got doubled up in the third quarter in terms of the amount of scoring that the the Miami Heat were able to put up. And they they could not come back. Um, You know, Miami was a considerably stronger team in the second half than they were in the first. And the Boston Celtics end up in a situation where now they are down to an 0-2 hole against a team that has basically cruised through the playoffs. Uh, Miami has lost only one game in uh, between their first two rounds of the uh, of the playoffs, and the Celtics are in a situation where their backs are definitely against the wall. Well, that ain't good. <laughs> uh, after the game, there was some fireworks as uh, some shouting was heard uh, from the, uh, the the Celtics uh, locker room. Apparently, several things were thrown. Marcus Smart, in particular, was singled out as being extremely unhappy, which, if you've been paying attention to Marcus Smart, is not terribly surprising. He is by far the most competitive person uh, on this team. Oh, God, did he punch another picture? He did not punch another picture. So far as uh, I know, there were no injuries that came out of his tirade, but uh, apparently he was rather uh, rather clearly heard to be telling the rest of the locker room, y'all on that BS, except, of course, that he did not use the term BS. Um, yeah, uh, this is a situation where Miami, this is a weird thing where the Boston Celtics occasionally have trouble dealing with uh, zone defense, which is a fairly elemental thing to have to deal with. And I, for whatever reason, offensively, once they get put in a situation where they go up against the zone. They keep trying to be an outside uh, shooting team. And in the first half of that game, this game, that was not a problem. They shot 63% from the floor for the first two quarters of the game. But after halftime, that, you know, that fortune went away and they just weren't able to deal with it. Um, I don't know why, but they don't seem to be willing to go to the basket. And I've noticed this now both in both of the first two games of the series, Jason Tatum in particular seems loath to go to the basket when he's got it in the closing seconds of the game. Aside from those, you know, the, the play that lost them a game against Miami in the first game, he, you know, he went to the hole for once uh, and got a dunk blocked by Bam Adebayo. So I, man, like this is a situation where I was concerned about this matchup going in. Um, I think that Miami is very much a team that is, always there to compete as at high at as high a level as humanly possible talent wise i thought that they were a better you know they i think they fit better together against uh you know than than toronto does right now or um or philadelphia does right now so you know i i was concerned about this matchup going in and my concerns so far have been entirely well founded this boston team does not seem to match up well against a team that can you know, put Bam Adebayo, Jimmy Butler, and Goran Dragic on the floor all at the same time, and all of those guys can score. This is not a situation where with Philly where 
you know, you don't have to worry about um, Joel Embiid being an outside scorer and, you know, just basically clog up the middle against him. You really do need to have good perimeter defense. And on the other end of the floor, you need to be willing to take some contact. Miami is a very, very physical team, very much unlike what we've seen from a lot of these other teams, even against Toronto. uh, You know, Kyle Lowry is somebody who will take a charge on any given day, but he generally does it only when he's aware that he's going to draw a foul against Miami. If you're going to score, they're going to make you basically bowl your way through them to the hoop to do it. Um, unless for some strange reason you're shooting the lights out on the outside. And that's not something that you can generally count on in the playoffs. So down 0-2, they do get to play uh, again tonight as we speak. Uh, it is Saturday. Hopefully they'll be able to uh, be able to pick something up. The good news for them is I think they have a three-day, uh, basically, inter. Uh, they have a, basically a three-day pause between games uh, after the third game of the series. Hope to uh, in an attempt to let the Western Conference catch up now that the Western Conference uh, champion uh, matchup is set. So, man, like they need this win tonight, and if they don't get it, like. I don't see them coming back from a 3-0 hole. This is not, you know, I, I do feel like this team has performed exceptionally well in the playoffs, particularly because they didn't look really all that good at the beginning of the, of the, of the, the you know, the bubble round, the, the early rounds of bubble play. But yeah, yeah, yeah. they, they need some, they need to get the, the show on the road if they're going to have any chance of being able to make the finals. I will say, even if they lose this series, frankly, even if they get swept in this series, although obviously I would be considerably less excited if that happened, I, this has been a much better postseason than last year was. I mean, for one thing, they seem to be playing much better together as a team. They seem to be, aside from the tirade last night, a lot happier as a, a team than they were. They went seven games against a Toronto team that basically gave them about everything that they could handle. They beat Philadelphia handily and frankly may have completely set back that uh, that franchise's expectations for the next few years. Like they've had a pretty good postseason. So if it were to end here, I would be sad, but I don't really feel like it would be a failure. Hopefully it won't be that, though. I mean, like I do feel like in terms of talent, I feel like they've got as talented a team as um, as the Heat do. But there are no bad teams left. Like you're down to the final four. There are no bad coaches left, and there are no, are no bad teams left. And if you want to have a shot at the NBA title, this is something that you're going to have to deal with. Like yeah, These are the teams you, cannot, you need to be. Yeah, you can't feast on teams that have either lost their biggest star and been unable to replace them in the case of Toronto or are completely mismatched and you know not particularly well coached or put together in Philadelphia. Like There are no easy games left. You have to be up for every single one. And right now, I got to be honest with you, like it's not really looking that like it's that way for uh, for the Celtics. Nah, it's unfortunate. I, I thought they kind of put themselves in a bad spot for the uh, with the Raptors, just for letting that you know buzzer beater shot go off. I thought that messed with them a little bit <clears throat> more than I would have liked because they didn't seem to just come in and handle the situation. They let them stick around, I kind of felt. They let them climb back into that series yeah. after you know, being in a situation where they should have won that game. And again, I'm like, I think that's a situation where if you watch the end of that game against the Raptors, this is something that happens to the Celtics team when they feel like they're being challenged is that they are they get a little bit shy about – 
going to the rim. They try to take outside shots. They try to take contested shots that play a lot of ISO and hero ball, which is not what gets them to lead in the first place. No. I don't know why they they really kind of fall apart once they become challenged. But right now, it's really looking like they need to sort of, you know, pull themselves together or else they're in danger of getting swept out of these playoffs. And I would hate it if they got swept. I want them to win at least one. I mean, everybody does, but I... I, I, I fear still, I know, fear that this is their thing. ceiling. Like the the Celtics always feel like an almost team. Like they never mm-hmm. feel like that they could like go all the way because when they do feel like they can go all the way, they have a disastrous postseason. Yes. So no, that's that's that seems what that definitely feels like what it's been lately. I will say this about the Celtics, which is that part of the problem is that their bench is very thin, um, and it's sort of a consequence of the fact that. They kind of mortgaged everything on the idea of making that those that Kyrie Irving contract work. They're in a situation where they're currently carrying, you know, somebody on a max contract who is not playing, which we'll talk about in a little bit. You know, they basically were over the cap coming into this season and were not really able to add a whole lot in the way of additional pieces. They've done a very good job, I think, of filling some of those spots with people who were already on the roster who really have kind of overproduced compared to what you would have expected. You know, they brought in um, Enos Cantor, but really Daniel Tice has been as good as you possibly could have asked him to be, given the people that he's playing against, right? Like, he's been in a situation where he's been putting up against three of the best centers in the NBA, and he's made it work. Like, he's been a very solid defensive player for them. You know they've got they've they've gotten much better minutes out of Grant Williams and um, um, uh, Robert Williams than I thought they were going to. You know they, they've they've gotten really good minutes out of Brad Wanamaker, which if you'd asked me last year, should I would have told you that he should have never seen the floor during the playoffs. But then they were in a situation last year where they had better guards, better guard depth than they have right now. Um, and so, you know, I don't think it's all that surprising that when, you know, the, the starters are out of the game, that they're having trouble sort of maintaining those leads. The problem is when those starters come back in, they kind of maintain, they kind of keep developing bad habits and they're not really able to get themselves back into the position that they were in when those starters went off the floor. In particular, the start, you know, the third quarters of every single game I think I've seen them play, bar the complete blowout they had of uh, of Toronto uh, in early in round two, they've just completely collapsed. And I I don't know what it is about this team that they don't seem to be able to maintain focus for a full forty eight minutes. You know, I would t- tell you that it's coaching, but I really don't think it is. Like Brad Stevens is clearly asking them to do the right things, but you know. Maybe it's just that their leaders are young players who haven't really quite learned yet what it takes to get beyond the Eastern Conference Finals. I mean, Jalen Brown has been there three of the four years that he's been in a Celtics uniform. You know, Jason Tatum has been there two of the three years he's been in a Celtics uniform. That's fantastic. But also, like, I don't know that they've really developed the, the you know, they haven't really been the guy on those teams for the most part. That was Al Horford or in Jalen Brown's early case, you know, one of those years it was Isaiah Thomas. And so, you know, they're, I guess they're having to learn what it takes to, to really be able to make it once you get to the final four. I guess we'll see. 
Yeah. Uh, moving on, talking about Jason Tatum. Uh, Jason Tatum was elected to the third team All-NBA. Uh, he is the basically the only one of two Celtics players in franchise history to learn All-League honors before the age of 23. The other one was Easy Ed McCauley. Uh, and I, I got to be honest with you, I have no idea who Ed McCauley is. He is well before my time as a uh, as a NBA fan. Um, he is not somebody who I could tell you a a single thing about. The fact though is that Jason Tatum did deserve it. He was definitely one of the best players at his position this year. Um, he is, you know, he was one of the youngest to make it to an All Star team. He's been basically their offensive engine pretty much this entire time. And I frankly, I think he deserves it. He has sort of made his way into the discussion as one of the best players in the Eastern Conference. And, you know, I have to say, given the number of early draft picks that the Celtics had, they've done a pretty good job for the most part of developing them into all NBA level players because I don't think that Jalen Brown is that far behind it. You know, uh, one of the big things about Tatum this year is that his defense took a major step. Um, but also, like, Brown's offense has also taken a major step. Brown is a, a much better, uh, you know, positioning guy and three-point shooter than he was in years past. So, you know, if they can manage to get these guys locked up going forwards, I think they're in a pretty good position, particularly as we end up in a situation where, you know, free agency is going to be real weird this upcoming season because the cap will be staying flat probably for not just this year, but for the next few years. The last bit of news that I have for you about the Celtics today is that Gordon Hayward has been up to, upgraded to questionable for game three. Um, I kind of doubt that you'll see him a whole lot in this one. Uh, he is eligible to play uh, following the, uh, sprain that he suffered early in the round robin rounds of the uh, of the postseason, but we're in a situation where they could definitely use him. Um, I like the Celtics, but several of their bench players really have been put in positions that they really should not have needed to be in going into the postseason. In particular, Sami Ojale has been absolutely dreadful most of the times that he's been put into uh, the game. Uh, in these early games against Miami. Uh, they could definitely use somebody who has got a bit more of an offensive touch coming off the bench, and Gordon Hayward could give them that, provided that he is even 80% of what he was before he went down. You know, he gives them at least a little bit more knowledge of how to deal with that um, that zone defense that they've been having to, uh, to, to figure out um, that both Toronto and Miami have used them against them so far. I know he's not your favorite player, but I, I'm hoping yeah. that you would be glad to see him back too. Yeah, at this point, I don't know if he makes a difference. At, the, at this point, I kind of expect him to just re-injure and be be out like before the half point of the game. It's, yeah, it's... I mean, I, I feel bad for Gordon Hayward from a from a certain point of view because man, like the guy seems to have been snake bit pretty much ever since that he signed a a contract in Boston. But by the same token, like. I feel like availability is a skill, and I don't know what it is specifically about his legs that causes them to be so fragile. But man, like, it would really suck to have him come back only just to lose him again 
and particularly if his ankle hasn't completely healed and he's trying to push himself into that particular, you know, into back into a game that just to see if he could push them further. That said, I mean, they've only lost these these games by a combined score of about, you know, seven points. So if he could give them another few points a game, he I think he could actually absolutely make the difference when it comes to, you know, being able to get them over the top for a win or two. So we'll see. Let's move on to the Boston Red Sox. Uh, the Red Sox lost in extra innings to the Yankees last night by a final score of 6-5. to five. Uh, In It took them 12 innings to lose this game. Um, neither the Red Sox nor the Yankees have had uh, particularly good seasons this year. The Yankees obviously are better than the Red Sox, who are quite close to the worst team in the AL uh, right now. Um, okay. As to the game itself, uh, I mean, I don't know about this, but do you have any excitement for a Red Sox-Yankees game at this point? Not with this Red Sox team, no. I mean, even in years past, Red Sox-Yankees games feel like a complete uh, grind to me. And if very... you told me that I was going to be sitting to watching 12 innings of this Red Sox team yeah. against the Yankees, no. I, 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 I would not be down for that, I have to say. Literally anything else. Root canal, done. <laughs> Prostate exam, done. <laughs> Because at least that won't last quite as long, right? Oh, yes. This team has just been so bad to watch. I've lost all interest in them this year. Are they Are they over 500? I haven't even looked to see if they're over 500. Oh, no, they're well under 500. Yeah, yeah they're currently at 19 and 33. Oh, they're going to stay there. Okay, yeah. Percentage. They are technically still not eliminated, uh, from what I understand. They still I... are... Uh, seven and a half games back of the of the AL wild card. And they're only but, like nine yeah, games left. I mean, left. this team is is bad. They are. Uh, they might have the worst record in the league right now because I think only Pittsburgh was. Yeah, Pittsburgh has a record of fifteen and thirty six. So yeah, the the Red Sox are current. Oh no, I'm sorry, they're not. Uh, the Pittsburgh and Texas, the Rangers, both have a worse record than they did. Yeah. But there's only. It's like funny, a- I, 11 Sorry, games left. There's only like 11 games left in the season though, right? Yeah. Um, but because of the shortness of the season, it, it is still theoretically possible that if they won all of their games and everyone else <laughs> lost their games, that they could make it into the post. They're, <laughs> yeah, they're very close to not being mathematically eliminated, but not there quite yet. Well, I guess there's something to play for them. Yeah. I mean, look, I'll say this, which is that I've heard a lot of people suggested that suggest that this is them tanking. I just don't see it. Like, you can do it in baseball. Obviously, we saw the Astros get there. But, like, it's real hard to tank with a, a, a crew as good as Boston's should be. Frankly, I think that they, you know, I don't think that Renicky is a particularly good manager. They're all, they're, their pitching is just absolutely ridiculous, right? They have given yes. up 313 runs against this year. The second worst in the AL East is Baltimore, is uh, excuse me Toronto, who's given up 273. Literally 40 fewer runs. Literally 40 fewer runs than uh, than the next worst team in their division. Yes. Well, I think we have to be a little bit lenient with the manager because due to the whole COVID situation, he's not really allowed to manage. Like I meetings, guess. meetings are limited and stuff like that. Well, I think it matters a little bit more if you're 
if your coach is screaming at you at the end of the game. But I, I just don't think that that happens right now. I think everyone goes into their own little pockets and stuff like that, and everything's done through Zoom and things. So I, I think it's well, and it's, I, I I think it just loses its edge if you're being yelled at on Zoom, or you can just mute it. Honestly, right. I mean, I will say this, which is that their pitching is so bad. They yes. are the only team in baseball that has given up more than 300 runs this year. Which means that, that, I mean, I'm looking at here, they are more than 20 runs clear of basically every team in the league right now except Colorado, who plays in a stadium which is notorious for giving up homers. Mm. I mean, this team, the, the pitching this team in this bad. has been so bad. Yeah, I just don't know what they expect. Anyway, uh, we did get some news about uh, a trade that had already happened. You may recall that they traded uh, Kevin Pillar in part for a player to be named later. That player was indeed named this week. Uh, the Red Sox get Jacob Wallace from the Colorado Rockies organization. Uh, he, pitcher, um, he is a Massachusetts native who pitched at UConn. Uh, 22-year-old right-hander who apparently pitches pretty hot. His fastball hits somewhere between 96 and 97 miles per hour. Uh, apparently he's pretty good with the slider too. Um, it's very difficult to know how good he is. He was basically picked in the third round of last year's draft has played very little professional ball so far, but what we've seen was pretty good. He posted a 1.29 ERA in 21 innings uh, during at choice season Boise in 2019 after signing, which is basically where they send guys right after they get drafted. So as pitching prospects go, this is not one to, this is not a bad one to get, uh, particularly when, you know, you're giving up a guy who clearly was not going to help the, the Red Sox this season. So I don't mind them picking this guy up at all. I wouldn't hold out any special hope that he's going to be a special player in a Red Sox uniform, but he at least seems to have enough stuff that he could be interesting going forward. I'll be interested to see where he gets when he, in a couple of years once he's had some you know, time, hopefully in the minors, to be able to, uh, to develop his pitching skills to you know, major league levels. Yeah, we'll see. Last bit of reds. Oops, sorry, go ahead. No, I just said, yeah, we'll see. It's. it's I mean, if they're going to get anybody, I'm glad that they got a pitching prospect, and at least he sounds like he's a ditch, you know, a decent pitching prospect. Okay. Uh, the last bit of news that I have for you is an update on Eduardo Rodriguez. Um, you may recall that Eduardo Rodriguez is basically out for the season from complications due to COVID-19. Uh, he did suffer myocarditis, which is supposedly one of the worst long-term effects that you can suffer from uh, being infected with COVID. And basically, they don't know what it's going to be like for him next year. Uh, myocarditis, you know, is one of those situations where because it causes a uh, complication in the cardiovascular system, you know, there's not a lot of understanding right now of what kind of player he is going to be next season. Uh, they are continuing to put him through, uh, you know, various kinds of rehab and trying to to get him back into shape. But, you know, the Red Sox pitching coach Dave Bush, when he was interviewed this week, basically said that they just don't know right now what's going to go, you know, what he's going to be like next season. Um, 
they think that they can get him into a strength program, but they don't think they'll be getting him into a strength program for the next couple of months. Right now, he is still in just straight-up rehab for his uh, myocarditis. So, yeah, I mean, he's currently not even cleared to participate in practices. Uh, real scary for, you know, a guy who's pretty young. Eduardo Rodriguez is, what, like maybe 30? Do you remember how old Eduardo uh, Erod is? 32, I wanted to say. Okay, I mean, still, like, there are guys, particularly as a pitcher, he could have a lot of life left in, in, in him. You know, at least, you know, five or six seasons. You know, I, I'm really hoping, from what they're saying, this makes it sound like he may end up having to contemplate retirement, which... Geez, I mean, for somebody with the promise that he had coming into the league, and frankly, you know, who had some pretty good success with them during the 2018 season, mm. it's real scary to see him in that kind of position. This says 27. Is he? He's 27? It says he was born in 1993. Oof. Jeez. I mean, I mean you're talking about a guy who Rough. can pitch for the next 10 years who's suffering these kind of uh, effects. That's real scary. <laughs> Let me just editorialize here for a moment. Wear a mask, people. <clears throat> anyway, let's move on to the New England Patriots. We had our first Patriots game of the season, uh, defeating the Miami Dolphins by a final score of 21-11. to 11. That should have been 28-11 to 11 if Nikhil Harry had not fumbled the ball through the end zone Jeez. from the one-yard line. I hate that. Ugh. Yeah, you can only imagine what the coaching staff had to be thinking about. Literally, like, and I will say, like, a lot of people have been down on Harry today, and rightly so from a certain standpoint. Obviously, he has not lived up to the the hope that a lot of people had in him when he was drafted. But he was having an amazing play right before he basically turned the ball over. And the way that he turned the ball over was to have it go through the end zone, which means that because of a weird role in the NFL – the Miami got it on their 20 yard line and not, you know, a foot from the end zone, which is where it went out of bounds. <sighs> Very frustrating. Regardless though, uh, the Patriots do pick up the win. Cam Newton looked good in this. Yes, um, he, did. he looked to be very mobile. I have to say he, they let him run a lot more than I thought he would. Basically before the third quarter was over, he had already set the, single game record for rushing yards in a Patriots uniform, which I thought was kind of interesting. Um, they, he looked accurate throwing. They were able to protect him pretty well. I think he was only sacked once, I think on the day, but yeah, I, I they looked obviously, you know, Miami is not a team that is expected to do a whole lot this year, but let's not forget. They were the team that basically cost the Patriots the, the first round by uh, in last season's playoffs, and they're largely the yeah. same team that they were last year. Um, they looked pretty good against the Miami team that, you know, just really was not able to get a lot going on offense. Their defense looked a lot better than I was afraid that it would, especially considering the number of linebackers that they lost to either free agency or opting out for COVID. So, yeah, um, I have mostly positive things to say about this uh the one thing I'm a little bit concerned about is the kicking. They sent Nick Folk down oh, to the practice squad again, which means to me that we may be seeing a Justin Rohrwasser uh, appearance against uh, Seattle this week. But anything that was stand it... out to you in particular about this game? Well, it was an easy field goal that was missed. Right. So I don't. I agree with sending him down. Like I, we can't. 
kicking has been a problem on this team for at least like two years now. And I don't want to see a third year, honestly. I mean, I, I will say this, which is that Gossiowski didn't look a whole lot better in in uh, in uh, Tennessee this week. So no, that at least appears to have been the correct decision. Yeah, but yeah, it's uh, it's a little concerning that that kicking has become a problem for a team that has traditionally been very strong on special teams. So like that's concerning. I actually find it a little concerning that Cam ran as much as he did. Uh, I understand that two of those runs were four touchdowns. Yeah. Uh, one of them I thought was a little reckless. The one where he went for the, the pylon there. I thought it was yeah. maybe a little reckless. Um, but I get that when people are doubling up basically their only option, which is Edelman right now, um, he's, he's going to be more apt to run when they're in the red zone. And I like that because it makes it so that it's not as easy of a game plan to shut down the Patriots. I felt with Brady, it was a little too easy because Brady wasn't going to be the one that just took the ball and ran. Not, yeah, not, like, what, like watching him run is always funny because he's so slow. Yeah. And like he does it every now and then, and it's usually for yardage. But the reason it's for yardage is because literally nobody is expecting it at the moment. But I do hope that Cam gets better at doing his checkdowns and finding other options. Um, because I don't think it's sustainable to have him keep running. Because if if the option is that he's going to run every time that he can't throw to his number one or two, I think teams mm-hmm. are going to pick up on that pretty quickly, and he's going to start getting uh, hit pretty hard, honestly. Yeah, and that's obviously the biggest concern with him is that he ends up suffering another season-ending injury. He's had two so far. We'd really not rather not have one in this particular case. The one thing that I will say is that it does, it didn't seem to me like they designed too many run plays for him, which I was happy to see. I think I saw one QB draw basically the entire game. Um, And they did manage to run the ball pretty well in this one. Yes. Um, Jackson, the, the new running back for them has done, did a pretty good job of moving the chains. Uh, And so I, I did feel like it was much more of a ball control offense uh, than I was expecting to see. Uh, and I'm okay with that. And frankly, if they if they're able to run a ball control offense, it means that they have confidence in their offensive line, and that was one of the major concerns that I had coming into this season with the retirement of Dante Skarniecki. Obviously, they have a much more challenging uh, foe this week, which we'll talk about in a minute. Mm-hmm. But so far, I have to say, like, if you were going to tell me that the first th- if you were going to tell me that Brady was going to retire and that we were going to see this the first game back, I, I, I'm kind of down for it. But he didn't retire. <laughs> oh, sorry, not retire. Move to another team. Yeah. Uh, all right. Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. No, no, no. Uh, I was going to move on to. Uh, there are, <clears throat> excuse me, a number of players that are going to be first-time nominees for the Hall of Fame this year that are former Patriots. Uh, Wes Welker, Gerard Mayo, and Logan Mankins were all nominated for the Hall of Fame as part of the 2021 nominees. Um, there are 130 total players that are nominated, which means that it's unlikely that all of these guys will get in. I would hope that you would see it for at least Gerard Mayo, who does, uh, I believe have a, uh, a, a Super Bowl trophy in under his, uh, belt, but man, I don't know if you've looked at this list, but there's a, there's a couple of interesting names on here. Uh, Charles Woodson is on this. Justin Tuck is on this. 
Uh, obviously, Calvin Johnson is on this, although, man, like that's going to be a weird one because his, his career ended in such a bizarre situation. How do you feel about the chances of any of them to be able to get into the Hall of Fame? Um, this is the actual Hall of Fame and not just the Patriots Hall not of Fame? Not the Patriots Hall of Fame. This is the actual Hall of Fame, which means that you know some of the, none of these guys might get in to start with because the the – NFL Hall of Fame does that thing where if you don't get, you know, sometimes you won't get in on the first ballot, you'll get in on subsequent ballots. I mean, honestly, out of this list, if Peyton doesn't get it, I'll be surprised. Yeah. Because Peyton Manning's there and like everybody loves him. <laughs> oh, I, I mean, I think Manning's going to be first ballot. I was thinking specifically about Welker, Mayo, and Mankins. Um, I honestly don't think they have a shot. I just don't think. Well, and this is just a total layman who doesn't really pay attention too much to stats and stuff like that. I just mm -hmm. don't think that they've wowed people, like the the people who vote for this, enough to put them in. I think Welker probably should get in. I think he's got because... the closest chance. What's that? I think he's got the best chance. I actually think Mayo probably has the best chance just because, really? you know, he was the lead linebacker on a couple of different Super Bowl teams. But I will say this about Wes Welker is that he, you know, he was very much the guy who changed the slot receiver position. He was, you know, the big innovation of those, you know, late 2000s, early 2010s Patriots was their use of the slot receiver. And a lot of that came down to how they used Wes Welker. So from a, important Hall of Fame, I think he is probably the one who should get in. But yeah, I, I, I agree with you that I think that probably um, that not, none of them are likely to make it on this first list. I'm trying to remember, there is a limit to the number of guy guys that they let in. Um, and just from the names that are on here, I think there are just more famous people on here that will end up making it. Yeah, which is... I don't know, yeah. we'll see. Yep. All right, uh, last bit of news that I have for you is the injury report versus the Seahawks. Uh, the Patriots ruled out linebacker Josh Uche. I think that's how you spell his name. It might be Uk. I'm not entirely certain. Um, wide receivers uh, Edelman and Nikhil Harry were listed as questionable. I got to be honest with you. If, we're, we're already I would starting be this extremely game. surprised if Edelman doesn't play. Yeah, we're already starting to play this game, huh, Belichick? Right. Now, they did limit Edelman's snaps uh, in the first game. He was limited to just 57%. Frankly, they were playing with the lead a lot, and they were rushing a lot. So Edelman not being in for those snaps doesn't particularly surprise me. Um, I'd be real surprised if they didn't end up relying on him a lot because, frankly, most of their other receivers don't look exceptional right now. James White did a pretty good job as a, a receiving uh, running back this last game, but uh, really it was pretty much the Edelman show from a wide receiver standpoint, uh, including just a terrible, terrible drop by Gunnar Olszewski at one point. But uh, apparently Matthew Slater is also listed as questionable with a new knee injury. Uh, he was limited in practice on Friday, but he did do some practice, which means to me that he will likely play. Um, Adam Butler, defensive tackle, Brendan Copeland, uh, Dalton Keene are also listed as questionable. I don't know a whole lot more about those. Philip Dorsett, who you may remember from his 
frankly, kind of disappointing time in a Patriots uniform, uh, is currently on the Seahawks and is there uh, in listed is listed as questionable there with a foot injury. Hmm. All right, moving on to the Boston Bruins. Probably the biggest piece of news did not happen this week, but we haven't talked about it yet, so I'm going to hear. Uh, Bruce Cassidy was awarded the Jack Adams Trophy, which basically is the trophy given to the coach who is considered to have done the best over the course of the season. Um, This is real big for Cassidy for a couple of reasons. One, it's very, very rarely goes to the guy who coached the best team in the league, which even though the Bruins were out uh, of the playoffs earlier than I think we would have expected, they were the best team by in terms of points total during the regular season. And this is a regular season award. The other reason is there was a fair chance that he was never going to coach again at one point. Uh, People kind of forget, but he was extremely unpopular in an early, uh, excuse me, in a late 2000s appearance as the head coach in Washington for the Capitals. And that apparently went so badly that he almost was unable to get another hockey job at one point. Uh, There was some discussion about that on the uh, 31 Thoughts podcast this week about, you know, just how how his career ended up getting turned around mostly by the fact that he, you know, knew Peter Shirelli, who is the guy who hired him to be the, the head coach for the Providence Bruins. Um, Cassidy's done a real good job of not only, you know, maintaining uh, the, the Bruins and sort of turning around a group that was starting to fade, but also in getting a, a really good rapport with his veteran players, which was really his problem when he was the, the head coach in Washington. Um, it, in a lot of ways, I feel like he is the opposite of Claude Julian because Julian's problem was that he would always sort of trust the veterans too much. Cassidy's problem when he was in Washington is that he was basically seemed to consider a lot of the veterans to be disposable. Uh, and that, Clearly doesn't seem to be the case in Boston. He seems to have been a pretty good fit, having made the Stanley Cup uh, final once and had them in the playoffs, I think, for all but like one year of his tenure there. So good for him. I'm glad that he picked it up. and I think that he definitely earned the recognition. Uh, He did get nominated previously. We talked about him uh, two years ago getting nominated, and he had finished the second uh, for the award that year, I believe, to John Torrella, who, frankly, I thought was likely to win it again this year. Uh, we did get some news about Zdeno Nochara, which is that he is not ready to retire. Um, in an interview this week, he said, uh, I think I addressed that question before I left, uh, we left for Toronto. I feel strong physically. I'm positive I can build, believe I can still play this game and contribute to the team, and that he wants to stay in Boston. The question is whether or not Boston's going to want him. Um, Boston is in an interesting situation where they have a number of restricted and unrestricted free agents that they need to be able to sign uh, following the end of this season. And Chara is a guy who is 43 years old. And while he does play, you know, still play very strong minutes for them, there's a question of how much money they're going to want to devote to a guy who will be in his 23rd year in the season. Um Obviously, uh, Don Sweeney, the uh, the general manager of the uh, Boston Bruins, was asked about it and really gave kind of a non-committal answer. So I'll be real interested to see how this goes. Uh, apparently, he has expressed Chara has expressed to his agent that he would like to have a direct meeting with management to see how things go. Um, 
you know, I, I do feel like it is likely that he returns to the Bruins next season. The question, I guess, is how much money or how much, whether or not he's willing to take a pay cut to do it, because it sounds like they may end up being in a situation where they, they have to do that to be able to be to fit him on the team, considering that much like the other sports, you know, NHL, the NHL is dealing with a flat cap next season when it was expected previously to go up. I would really love to see him retire as a uh, as a, a Bruin. Uh, you know, obviously he didn't play his whole career here, but he's played more than half of it here. Uh, he started with the New York Islanders. He played four seasons with the um, the Ottawa Senators, but basically since being signed as a free agent, uh, he has spent 12 straight years with the Boston organization and appears to just really love the organization and the city. And man, it would be... It would kind of break my heart to see him go somewhere else, even at the age of 43. you have any thoughts on this? Um, I mean, when it comes to money right now, I think everyone needs to understand the situation. So he'll probably come back for, as long as it's not too much of a pay cut, I think he'll come back. It wouldn't surprise me that he's willing to take actually a pretty significant pay cut, because frankly, he's played long enough. He really doesn't need the money that much. I know there's a lot of you know pressure from the union to be able to take as much as you can get, but Chara does seem to genuinely want to stay with Boston, and so I really hope that he's able to do so. I just hope they don't take advantage of that and give him too low of a number. You know what I mean? Ah, man, I, I mean, the, the problem with that is that it's so public these days what those numbers are going to be that I find it highly unlikely that, they, like, that they'd really be able to take him – to that like if he takes a pay cut like a serious pay cut it's because he's decided that it's worth it to him to stay in boston like it's it's not going to be a situation where somebody's taking advantage of him. this is a guy whose lifetime earnings are i believe pretty close to the triple digits so you know uh, it's a situation where he probably doesn't need the money at this point it would be one thing if you did it to say tory krug who we're about to talk to talk about like, that's a guy whose best years of earning potential are ahead of him. Chara, you know, he's still a very good player. I'd say he's still in the top half of defensemen in the league. And, you know, his value to them as a coach is very, very high. But I don't see a situation under which I see them really being able to take advantage of him. Like, there are plenty of other teams who would like to be able to bring him in, not just in the NHL. Like, let's not forget, he's a guy from Slovakia, a, a country that really has been looking to, you know, have somebody come in and help them sort of rebuild a lot of the the potential that their program had in the late 90s and early 2000s. So I, I think Charo will be okay. I just hope he's okay in a Boston uniform. The last bit of Bruins news that I have for you is a discussion, not so much news, but a discussion about the future of Tori Krug. Krug is probably the most high-profile UFA that they have coming into this up, upcoming offseason, and it's going to be a real interesting situation. Um, you know, he gives them something that they feel like they sorely need, which is a puck-moving defenseman who gives them a little bit of offensive punch. Uh, I know that one of the things that the management was particularly disappointed in uh, the with the the current uh, crop of Bruins and their latest run at the, play, at the postseason was just how little offense they were able to muster outside of that top line. So ideally, he would be somebody who you would look to retain since he's one of their better offensive defensemen. 
but frankly, they might just not be able to afford him. Um, there's been a lot of speculation that a number of the other teams in the league are really looking to to line up to give him a, a big deal. Uh, in particular, Detroit, which he is, would, which would be his hometown team since he went to to Michigan University, that would is a team that has been rumored to really be willing to sort of back up the Brinks truck to be able to bring him in. And man, I'd love to see them be able to keep him, but. I feel the same way about Krug that I kind of felt like uh, like um, Louis Erickson before he left, which is that Krug is a guy who is just good enough that somebody else is likely to overpay him. Okay. Um, All right. I I really like Krug. I would love to say him see him stick around, but like it's starting to sound like somebody's going to give him top pairing defenseman money, and I just don't see him as that guy. Um, his Offensive production has been very good. Frankly, he's, you know, he's 29. He is basically at his prime right now. He's not likely to improve much beyond what he is, which is a very good second pairing defenseman. And if somebody's willing to give him, you know, seven and a half to $9 million a year, that's not going to be in Boston. I just don't see it. Um, I, I, I know that Krug prefers to stay in Boston. Well, I don't know that. The rumor is that he prefers to stay in Boston, but I just don't see a circumstance under which they could pony up the kind of money that he's going to demand unless he chooses to take a short-term deal to try to bridge the gap between now and when the cap goes up again. And that's something we've heard rumored that a number of players are considering doing. At his age, I have to be honest with you, I think that's a bad idea. I think it would be one thing if he were you know, a 25 to 26 year old guy who was just entering his prime. But at 29, he's at the top of his prime right now. I don't see a situation under which he'd be able to, you know, wait until he's 31 and get the kind of money it sounds like somebody's willing to throw at him now. So as much as I hate to say it, I think we need to prepare for, you know, life on the Bruins without Tory Cruz. So you don't want the Bruins to pay that money? No, okay. not that much money. Because the problem with the the thing that you get in trouble with, in, in and I think this is something that we learned from the Chiarelli era, it's not paying the the guys who are your stars, right? Like you can give David Krejci seven and a half million a year, you can give you know uh, David Pasternak seven million dollars a year. That's not a problem. It's paying those second line defensemen and third line, you know. Uh, third line offensive players that that gets you into trouble it's it's what eats up your cap to in situations where you could probably go out and find somebody who can give you most of that production at a lower number it's one of the reasons i hated the david backus contract because david backus was obviously not going to be a guy who was going to be a a top line player for the bulk of his career he didn't even start on the top line he started on the second line and sort of fell down from there but you were still paying him six million dollars a year and i will say one thing about don sweeney which is that so far he's been really good about knowing when to let go of players unfortunately because this is a hard cap league it's not like basketball where you can overpay somebody who's a hometown favorite and not really have it hobble you in the future in a hard cap league very much like football you have to be really ruthless about the guys that you're willing to keep and the guys that you're willing to let walk you know, and like I said, I think we saw that with the Louis Erickson contract. I think we saw it with, you know, getting rid of Adam McQuaid. I think we saw it with even, you know, trading Johnny Boychuk to the New York Islanders. As much as I hated to see him go because he was part of that 2011 run, 
that was not a guy they were going to be able to afford going forward. And so I think it makes a lot of sense if you can't get Krug at a little bit of a discount to let him walk. If somebody's paying him north of $7.5 million a year, there's no chance they're hanging on to him. Frankly, I don't think they'd hang on to him at much over six because they just, you know, they don't have the space without severely compromising their ability to, you know, to be able to improve the their team in the areas that it needs improvement. They're going to have to go out and be able to get that second line back up and running again. You know, they're going to have to deal with departures of Jake DeBrusque soon. They're going to have to deal with paying Charlie McAvoy soon. You know, I, it wouldn't surprise me to find out that they, you know, that they trade a couple of players to do that. If you're going to make that space, Tory Krug is not necessarily a guy who fits into your plans going forward. And as much as I would love to see them, you know, keep, hang on to him, I just don't want them to pay too much for a guy who is, you know, while very talented, not somebody who is going to be the best player on your defensive core. Hmm. Okay. Let's move on to national news. We had a unusual situation earlier this week. The Big Ten uh, Athletic Conference, college athletic conference, I should say, uh, basically changed its mind its, uh, this week. Six weeks ago, it had claimed that it could not safely play uh, because of heart-related issues related to COVID-19 and the inability to properly test uh, appropriately. They were going to completely shelved the season, but as of this week, they're now planning to launch their season starting in October. Uh, well, this is an interesting situation. So they claim that one of the things that changed was uh, medical advice, that doctors changed their medical opinion regarding the likelihood of myocarditis. Um, I'll be honest with you, I don't believe them. Uh, and this is one of those situations where there's a great deal of local politics that may be involved in this. Um, in particular, it seems that uh, a number of politicians have made restoring Big Ten football a part of their, a part of their, you know, not so much their platform going forward, but something that they would uh, would speak up about. Big Ten says that it was not political pressure. Um, he, they, they said it was not about money. It wasn't about what anyone else is doing, referring to the ACC and the SEC. And I have to be honest with you, like, I just don't believe them. Yeah, because weren't the, weren't the towns that they're in or the cities that they're in also complaining about the amount of money that they weren't going to make because of the... That, uh, that is absolutely true. Yeah. I mean, you have, people kind of underestimate the amount of economic activity that surrounds Big Ten football, which is, let's face it, largely centered in you know, the western part of the east, basically starting at western Pennsylvania and going all the way through the Midwest, which is, you know, some of those towns are basically entirely sustained by the colleges that are within them. You know, if you are Ohio State or you are Penn State or you are Wisconsin, those towns really don't have a lot of activity, economic activity without those, those athletic uh, organizations. So, yeah, I mean, this is a scary circumstance. If I were a player within the Big Ten Conference, I would be very concerned, particularly because it sounds like they're not even going to have testing up and running until about uh, the, September 30th. Jeez. Now they, yeah, now they say that games aren't going to start until basically the third week of October, which would in theory give them enough time to get all the testing that they need in place. But man, like after all of the, the, the mess that was the SEC's opening, I have to be honest with you, this... This sounds like an exceptionally bad idea to me. 
does sound it does kind of reek of that they were forced to honestly so well let's just hope that they don't mess it up and and bad things happen because of it i mean i really do hope that they're able to sort of maintain the levels of testing that are required but man like (laughs) if there's one thing that has outlined more than anything else how much of college athletics is about money it's the response to covid19 yes like I, it is absolutely stunning to which the the money seems to play the, a, a difference in college sports when, you know, I, I don't know how many people still believe that that's not the case, but certainly in a lot of people still do. All right. Last bit of news that I have for you today is that the Tokyo Games has made an announcement this week. The Japanese government has decided to set up a system to exempt athletes that are expected to compete at the 2021 Olympic and Paralympic Games. Um, This, of course, comes about because Tokyo, uh, excuse me, uh, Japan, like many other uh, Pacific countries, put in a very strong travel ban that basically restricted people from coming into the country with uh, except under extremely specific circumstances. Um, They announced the athletes will be expected to monitor their own health and they will be required to test negative for the coronavirus within 72 hours of leaving their own country. Uh, They'll be tested again upon entering Japan and will have their movements monitored and restricted after arrival. This seems very likely to be following uh, the model that has been set forward by a number of other professional leagues, not least of which is the NFL, which I have to say so far seems to have done a pretty good job of keeping a track of its athletes. Um, they can sort of use a hybrid model of that and what the NBA has done. Uh, the NBA's bubble and actually the NHL's bubble have been extremely um, successful. There has, to the best of my knowledge, been no case of a currently uh, infectious COVID patient being allowed into uh, the bubble. Even though, you know, the, uh, the NHL, I think, passed the 6,000 test mark this week without having a single positive within either of its Edmonton or Toronto bubbles. So I have to say, I think with what we know now about how how leagues can operate, this does make a fair amount of sense for the Tokyo Games. And it, I have to be honest with you, I think one of the things that the Olympics may have lucked out with is where they're holding those games. Japan has done a fairly good job of making sure that it can control coronavirus within its own borders, that combined with the bubble protocol that they've used, that uh, that other leagues have used, I think does give them a situation where they could hold an event as large as the Olympics and still have it go forward. Um, even if there is not a a full vaccine available by the, the time of the start of the Olympics next year, which is unfortunately still a real possibility, I think they've given themselves the best chance for holding these in a way that would keep everybody involved safe from the coronavirus. So, you know, I, I like to bag on the Olympics a lot, mostly because I, I think the Olympic uh, committees are generally fairly corrupt. But in this case, I think they seem to have gotten something right. And so I did want to give them, I think, the uh, the respect that they deserve. Any okay. thoughts about this? Um, I'm kind of hoping we have a vaccine by then so that we can just stop talking about this. <laughs> Uh, I mean, that would be ideal, but it would be ideal. You know, obviously, I don't think that they can I don't think they can plan on a vaccine being available by the time that this rolls around. I think it makes sense for them to put in place a, a, a situation where they could go ahead with the games, even the event that coronavirus is not, 
you know, controlled by vaccine. But uh, it worked, like you said, it worked pretty well for NBA and, and NHL. Um, and and I, it seems to have worked with FIFA, you know, with some of the, the overleague soccer leagues as well. Yeah, I haven't actually looked to see how, how bad any of the soccer leagues have been hit by any of this stuff. Um, I, I think it's doable. So if there's a way to do it, do it. So I'm okay with them setting it up this far ahead of it. I think it makes sense for them to, to do the planning now, in part because they really got screwed by the time of all this, right? Like, yeah. they were basically doing final preparations for the games when everything hit, and then suddenly had to make a decision to postpone the games by a year. Putting these controls in place now, even if they don't need them, puts them in a situation that even if there are, you know, the same levels of outbreak next year that there were at the beginning of this spring, they're still in a position where they can do what they need to be able to do and do it safely. Yeah. All right. I think that will do it for this week. Uh, this has been the Unqualified Sports Show. You can follow us online at unqualifiednetworks.com. You can follow the show on Twitter at unqualifiednet. You can follow me on Twitter at nsnitko. That is N-S-N-I-T-K-O. And you can follow Forrest at Forrest James. And that's Forrest with two R's. If you have a story that you'd like to share with us or you'd just like to provide some feedback, Feel free to drop us a line at unqualifiednetworks at gmail.com, and we'll see you again soon.